This is 1 Peter, starting in verse 13, uh, running through the second chapter, sorry, first chapter, verse 13, running through the third verse of the second chapter. Peter's just outlines this great gift of salvation that is, shapes who these people are who are receiving this letter. Uh, and as Terry talked about two weeks ago, how this salvation and this promise is something that has been promised and prophesied about through the ages. And it's finally reaching fulfillment here uh, in the coming of Christ. So starting in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's something wonderful about that, that song, that when it says the, the waves and wind, still know his name, every time we sing it, it just some, it does something for me. It's in a sense of, it feels like a world's going to the dogs, you know, but the waves and wind, they still know his name. And if we won't, in the gospel says if, if we won't worship the rocks will you know uh, there's something there's something that gets me deep inside when i when i see those words so i love singing that song it's, it's, it's a very interesting song so um do you have bibles with you i would you know i really do want to encourage you to get a bible the kind of helpful things as believers get a bible use it read it it's the most unread book on people's shelves i think right now uh, there are multiple versions in most people's homes and not read. So it's really helpful to, to get it. Um, and it's helpful to bring it with you. Um, I know we put it up there, and that's a good thing. There's something about turning the pages that actually is tactile. It gives you hands-on with the scriptures. So don't listen to me. I, I just like doing that. I like it when, it when the pages get faded and messed because you've been doing this and they tear a little bit. Feels like really good. Anyway, away from that. So we read that text from 1 Peter. We, we're going to just sit with a few verses, not that whole bit. That's over the next few weeks, but it gives us the context of what we want to do. Um, and as we've entered 1 Peter, I do want to remind us that we remember our overarching thing is what does it take for us 
to live as disciples to Jesus in Los Angeles. That's our vision. That's our mission. How do we best live as disciples to Jesus? And so we live in a, in a, uh, as one of the commentators said, we now live as exiles, Christians. We live as exiles in this world. We're refugees. Um, and this is a book, 1 Peter, that's written to those sort of people. They're refugees. They're in exile. They've scattered um, from homelands, and they're living all over Asia Minor. And, P- and Peter, this old-time apostle, has kind of followed Jesus for a long time. He's been through ups and downs. He's walked on water. He's sunk. He's denied, and he's fought. He's done all these things. And he's an old guy, and he's trying to encourage the church that's, in, that's, in, that's struggling. Um, how to live as disciples of Jesus when everything around is not as it should be. There's persecution. Uh, there's oppression. They away from the, many of them away from their homes. The, the, the Roman Empire is trying to crush them. All those things. And he writes to them and says, listen, guys, stick it out. That's basically what he's saying. And we want to unpack that as we go. Um, and as Brian said there earlier, we, it, it starts, these, the first chapters, part of the chapter starts with this glorious gospel. This glorious message of the salvation that we have received. The glorious work that God has done in Jesus Christ. And most of the letters start like that. They always start with the, the theology, the goodness. This is what God has done. Therefore, now live like this. Never starts with you better live. It always reminds you of why you should live. I know when I got saved nearly 40 years ago, wasn't so much that it was just told now you're a christian don't do this don't do this it didn't tell me all the things i could do it was all the things i couldn't do but actually the letters start with how glorious is this thing that jesus has done for us this liberty that he's given us this freedom that he's given us this power that he's given us therefore live a certain way it wasn't does it make sense so when it came to the don'ts it was oh that's why it wasn't like why can't i go to movies you know, that was in our days, not so much in to, today. And then Peter turns his attention to actually, this is how you should live. But the salvation, I think it's important. If you haven't listened to it, I really want to encourage you to go listen to Brian's talk, the third talk in, in 1 Peter when he spoke about this great salvation. Because actually it's an all-encompassing salvation that's quite powerful. He spoke about, we can use it in three terms, justification, sanctification, glorification, these great Theological words, but it's, he spoke about the salvation as something past, something present, something in the future. All together, it's, it's operating this great salvation. And I wanted to, as I was writing this out, I wanted to think of some things. How could I, how could I communicate this in a way? And this, I don't often do, what's it when you get all the D's or all the, what's that called? Alliteration. But I got a few D's today. All right. This great salvation displays God's mercy, God's grace, and God's love. If we miss that, we've missed salvation. Not only does it display something, but it dispenses hope and new life. We actually receive new life. It's not about going to church. It's about receiving life from above. It's about receiving this new life in Jesus that changes us forever. It defeats the power of death and sin. This great salvation that was done has defeated the power of death and sin. And fourthly, it destines us to an eternal inheritance. We've got to take all of that in the gospel. 
the good news of salvation. If we just take part of it, we get in a little slither. We need the, the bigger picture, and there's more to it than that, but that's four Ds. I couldn't think of a fifth. I'm sure there is. Trying to capture, this is a big thing. This is not just about, oh, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. No, no, it's much more. I've received life. I've received love. I've received power to live. I mean, I mean I've got hope. There's an inheritance that lies ahead of me. And so whenever we talk about this, when Peter writes, he wants to, when he starts his exhortations of, okay, Jesus has done this, or the Father has done this in Jesus, this great salvation, and I want you to do this. He, start, he roots us in God's character and, and our status. He doesn't just say, okay, do these things. He says, I want to remind you of who you are. One of the great things that we can grasp as followers of Jesus is who we are. What is our identity? Because most of us just think, man, I'm just this person and God's added some salvation to me like a big wart on the side of my head. And I keep walking along, but I'm actually this old person with a wart. And now everyone looks at the wart and says, oh, I'm glad I'm not one of you. Look, you end up with a wart on your face. Actually, what Jesus has come and given us new birth is that he's transformed us into new creations. It's a whole new ballgame. It's not an addition. It's a total transformation. It's a total dying and a rebirth into the ways of God. And it's rooted in God's character and who God is. It's not separate from God. So basically, here's a father and here's some children. And they are linked through this great gospel. And we can call this great God of the universe, the creator God, Abba, Father. That's the gospel. I'm going outside of the text a little bit, but I think it's important to understand the father-child relationship. So when Peter writes and says, I want you to live this way, it's so that we can reflect the character and the life of the one that we follow and the one who saved us and the one who set his affection upon us and the one who's given us new life. Is that right? You want your children to do what you do. That's what's supposed to happen. All right? We're supposed to represent God well. Okay, we mustn't represent the way of the ancestors or what came before or the culture or what is around us. Our old family values, you can read about that in 1 Peter 1.18. We'll get to it next week. We've actually been changed. Our values have changed. So your values in your family might have been get, 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 grow, take for yourself. The value of the kingdom is give, bless, be kind. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, trust in others to help you on this journey as you help others. It's very different. And many of us are still shaped by our old cultures, our old family values, our old social values. I'm South African, so I'm shaped by a South African way of thinking. Canadians. Oh, my word. People from Oklahoma. Oh, Boston. I mean, it's just bad. It's really bad. No, what I'm saying, we all shape by where we come from. But actually in Christ, we receive a new life. We receive new values. We receive a new father. There's a new identity that shapes. So when we get into all these other things, it must be tied to that. Is that okay? I kind of rambled a bit. Alistair McGrath, who's become my, one of my new favorite people to read, um, he wrote this book called Mere Discipleship. It came out a few months ago. He is a, an Oxford professor of theology and science. He started, he was an atheist who was a natural scientist, then became, got saved, became a Christian, and is 
You know, he's, he's debating Richard Dawkins and those sort of guys. He wrote this. The Christian faith helps us to form habits of seeing and shape directions of gaze that change the way in which we think about things, experience the world, and act within it. It gives us a new way of perceiving the world, allowing us to understand ourselves and this world in a distinctly Christian way. We acquire a new way of thinking, which differs radically from the habits of thought we pick up from the natural world and from secular culture. What's he saying? If we want to be followers of Jesus, you have to allow yourself to be changed, to see differently, to think differently. That leads to acting differently. If we just think like the world, act like the world, then we are not living out the life that Jesus gave us to represent his father. Is that a fair enough quote? I think so that's a challenge to us. Because we spend most of our life in the world. We spend most of our life being crushed by secular values and all the things around us, which means we have to do effort to actually shape ourselves around Jesus. It just doesn't happen. The natural thing that happens is you'll get shaped by the world. So you actually have to do work. And then you get to verse 13, this pivotal verse in this text. It says, therefore. In the light of this, therefore, he's saying now, therefore. When you see a therefore, you mean it? What? What's a therefore? It's linking these two things. All right? It's a transition between this great body of truth of salvation that Jesus has done for us and what he's exhorting us to do in a way of beginning to live. We're telling you, you're a new people with a new identity. Live like that. Now, one of the things that we struggled with is, is immigrating to the United States is that we came in, we were South African, then we became American. And then the challenge people say, well, why don't you live like that? Because we're trying to hold on to this old stuff and you've got to let it go. If I want to embrace what it means to live here and make an impact here, I have to let go of some of that stuff. Same with Jesus and even greater. So he t challenges us to four things, which we read in that text. We're going to cover two today. The first one is we need to set our hope fully on the grace that will come when Christ Jesus is revealed. Verse 13. So we've got to set our hope. That's number one. It's really important. Number two, we need to be holy as God is holy. Thirdly, we need to love one another earnestly. We'll get to that next week. And fourthly, we need to crave what nourishes the new life. We, you know, with pure spiritual meat, causing us to grow up, not just be infants forever. We need to grow up. All right, these are things that he's asking us to do. They, they imperatives, they definitives. I need you to do this. In the light of this, this is what I need you to do. So we're going to look at two of those right now. So firstly, hope. We touched on hope a little bit. We did it at the resurrection. But hope means, let's read that again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope, to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial or to expect with the implication of some benefit. There's, it's a looking forward with expectation. 
Um, and at, but what Peter's writing here when he writes about hope, he's not talking about this like, you know, I hope it rains tomorrow. I hope to, it's a cooler day tomorrow. I hope my mom buys me a birthday gift. I hope, we're not talking about that. That's not that, that's like that futile kind of hope. The Greek word here, elpizio, is that how you pronounce it, Brian? You sure? Hope involves the idea of assurance that what we hope for will certainly come. Did you get the trophy? No trophy, I'm sorry. Popsicle. Some, for some for kids, that might be better. The Greek word alpizo, as used in the New Testament, involves the idea of assurance that what we hope for will come to pass. It's because future hope in the New Testament is based on something that's already happened. What has happened? Anyone guess? What has happened that gives us assurance of the future? Resurrection. Yeah. Woo. Good Friday, the revolution began. Easter Sunday, first sign that this revolution is happening. Because of what has happened, we have an assurance that what we hope for will come about. Because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and he's ascended into heaven and he's gone to ensure that the terms of this covenant that have been promised to us will become our way. That's the assurance. So when we hope, when he says here, uh, set your hope fully on the grace, is that we live with an in incredible expectation of that what Jesus promised is going to happen, and it is coming our way. Now, it's either going to come our way when we transition from this world to the next or when he comes back. Now, because there's no time in God, it all might be at the same time. Who knows? A thousand years is like a day, a day is like a thousand years. But either you're going to pass away or he's coming. But either way, your inheritance is coming. Either way, if you are this, in a new relationship with Jesus, you have established new identity in Christ, you hope for something that you are assured of. We need that to live in the world that we live in. These people needed it to live in the world that they were living in where life was crazy and they were under oppression and persecution and exile and refugees, all that. They needed hope. When you have no hope, people die. That's why I love reading about um, Viktor Frankl or uh, Bonhoeffer in the prison camps, in the German prison camps. Why? Because they had set their hope on an eternity, and they said when these guys walked into a room, the place lit up. Viktor Frankl writes, he said, they could have kept me in chains, but I was free. Why? Because it was about a new identity in Jesus. And if we don't have that, then living as a Christian is a crappy, crappy thing. It's hard. But we have hope. And so we have, we have received salvation. It's happened. If you're a new person, if you've trusted in Jesus, you're a new creation, it's happened. Yet there's a future happening that's coming, and it's the fulfillment of everything that you've expected and believed for. As I, I think, I don't know where I said it, but 
I was watching someone and someone said, what's heaven? And a little child said, it's the place where there are no tears. That's how they could describe heaven. It's the place where there's no tears. If you are ill, it's the place where there's no illness. If you've got broken relationships, it's the place where all relationships are healed. If you are mourning and grieving, it's a place where there's no mourning and no grieving. And I think of those people in Sri Lanka, in church, you know, they hope, no, there's a hope there will be restoration. We live with that. And Peter's instructing them, live like that. Doesn't, you can't control what's happening around you. You can't control society, but man alive, you can allow yourself to live in the fullness of what Jesus has for you so that you can live free. But it's not easy. Any commentator you want to read, any person of substance you want to read will tell you the only way that it's possible, and talking about old historical writers, new people, theologians, the only way that it can be done is if you are part of God's community of people. I don't want you to come here because you, it, in some way it makes me feel good. Oh, there are slightly more people for me to preach at. I don't want you to come here because, oh, there might be more people that can give. I don't want you to come because, oh, there might be more people, whatever. You need to be here because without community, you cannot and will not become the kind of person that Jesus wants you to become. And you can disagree with me, and I'm happy for you to be wrong. There are many things I'm not sure about anymore. I used to be very sure about a lot of things. There are lots of things I'm not sure about. That I'm sure about. I'm not saying you won't make it to the end, but you will stumble in on your hands and knees, bleeding when you cross the line, in by the skin on your chinny-chin-chin, fire burning at your pants, I think one of the verses says. But you could go in boldly arm in arm with others because we've done this together. Because when you are falling down, there's got to be someone who will lift you up. And when I'm falling down, are you there to lift me up? And when our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka are falling down, are we there to lift them up? Hmm? You want to get to the end. If you want to hope, the new identity puts you into a new family. And you might come from a screwed up family. I come from a totally screwed up family. Most of you know my story. But I got put in a new family. I want to I run the race with my family. I want to get to the end. I want you all to be there helping me get to the end and me helping you get to the end and we declare victory together. It's going to be just glorious. Is that all right? It's not in my notes. We set our hope fully by preparing our minds for action. Peter writes, and by being self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, in the Greek, the word prepare your minds literally means, in that old phrase, to gird up the loins of your mind. And so in old days, your people wore long cloaks. And so they would gird up. They would take that cloak, they'd wrap it, pull it through their legs, tuck it in their belt so that their legs were free to run or whatever they had to do. So when you read that in the Old Testament, they girded up their loins. It means they took their cloak and wrapped it to free their legs to be able to get on with what needed to be done. Otherwise, they're just going to trip over themselves. 
And so what Peter's writing here is prepare. Gird your mind. Get your mind ready. Free it from the things that will prevent you from running into everything that God has for you. Sorry, I'm shouting. Oh, my word. <clears throat> Gird your Prepare yourself for that moment when you're going to need to run or help another. And it's not so that you can run away. It's so that you can run into and run and help. When someone's fallen down and you'll run into the face of the enemy and help that person up. So gird your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. It means get your thinking right. You know, metanoia, the word repent, means to change your mind. Another way of saying it is just change, get your thinking right. Look at things a little differently. Sort it out. Be sober-minded. Be ready. Don't be like the five unwise virgins who their, their lamps weren't trimmed, they didn't have oil, and the bridegroom came and they got left behind. No. We, oh, my word. We need, they are ready for action. We need to be ready. All right? The new birth implies an altered way of life, which starts here. You've got to change the way you think. The kingdom of God is at hand, John the Baptist declared. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus declared. And the first thing, repent. What the, change the way you think about things. Oh, trouble's coming. Oh, my word. See, this is family, isn't this what family is like? If that was your child, go sort them out. No. All right. My friend Alistair McGrath, who I don't know, but is becoming a written friend, said this. Christianity is always known. I've read this to some of you. Christianity has always known this idea of hope, which it sees in its own distinctive way as allowing us to cope with suffering, to journey through darkness, and to live meaningfully in a world in which things often don't seem to make complete sense. The Christian philosopher John McMurray captures this aspect of hope well. The maxim for illusory religion runs like this, fear not, trust in God, and he will see that none of the things you fear will happen to you. That's a, that's a Christianity I got saved into. Which we, after a few hours, you realize, oh, it doesn't quite work like that. <laughs> that of real religion, on the contrary, is fear not. The things that you are afraid of are quite likely to happen to you. But there's nothing to be afraid of. Does it make sense? Just because we step into new life in Jesus doesn't mean it's, you're not going to have a hard life. It just means there's nothing to be afraid of. Why? Because you have hope. You have a certainty of an, ass an assurance of what lies ahead. If you become a Christian, I want to tell you that the storms of hell are coming your way. Those storms. Know that word? They're coming your way. Why? Because you stepped into the battlefield. The moment you have that change of thinking, the way you start, you start swimming upstream. You cannot be a Christian and, and, and swim downstream. It just doesn't work like it. You will 
swim upstream or you will crawl or you will do something but it's upstream if you want to follow jesus so it's coming your way you can't escape that but there's nothing to be afraid of because you're of the assurance of what you hope for does that in any way make sense now i'm not saying you're going to get it all today i'm just going to say what you need to do is go and get your mind right God, teach me, show me, get me into the text, into God, whatever, so that your mind gets adjusted so you can do that. You know, the worst thing that can happen is that, and it sounds terrible, is that our lives are taken from us. But at that moment, you transition into your inheritance. And all pain and all tears is gone. Now, please, I'm not wanting to be a martyr. I'm not advocating martyrdom. And anyway, I'm just saying, when you know who you are and your identity is secure, doesn't mean you never have doubts, never do, doesn't mean you never have a wobble, doesn't mean that at all. But when you know that you know that you know, that you know in your knower that you know that you know, then there's a certainty and you can, and you can live boldly and live bravely and live in opposition and take it on the chin when friends and family don't understand and don't want to do those things. Ephesians 1.18 says this, knowing the hope to which he has called you. You can go read that later, but it's a great. Know the hope to which he has called you. Colossians 1, the hope laid up for you in heaven. Laid in Colossians 1, Christ in you, the what? The hope of glory. These are powerful texts that speak of what Jesus does in us and the way that he wants us to live. And Peter, who's run the gamut of running away, engaging, fighting, fearful, all those things, has, has, has got it. And he's telling these believers, yeah, gird yourselves, get ready, prepare your minds, be ready for what? Because you live in a hard world. And we can learn from this. We can learn from these people. Because there's nothing new under the sun. That, that's a little bit on hope. Is that okay? Did you get, kind of get the point? hope so. Second one is we need to be holy. What? What? Hope so. Hope so. Okay. Oh, my word. Be holy. We don't like that word in, in the modern world that we live in or the postmodern or as I like to call it so I'm always up to date the pre-future I live in a pre-future okay be holy it says in verse 14 as the as the because of as the obedient children of God you are, that you are now that's why we need to be holy we need to be holy by not being conformed to your ignorant desires from the past we need to be holy in your whole way of life not just in a religious part like on Sundays, I'm holy. But once I'm out of this meeting, whoo, I'm free to go do it. No. We are holy because it affects all of us. And we are holy in obedience to the God whose holy character is expressed in the Bible. So what does it mean to be holy? Because I think that word is so all over the place, you know. You know, Jesus says, be perfect like I am perfect. What does that mean? Kind of an interesting text. To be holy means that Christians 
must conform their thinking and behavior to God's character. How's that? Is that simple? In Leviticus 19 verse 2, God makes this declaration to his covenant people. Be holy as I am holy. That's what it's referring to here. Be holy as I am holy. We know that it's a progressive thing. We know that it's over a lifetime that God changes us. We get new identity immediately, but the outworking of, of that and the growth of that and the maturity of that and the change that comes with that takes place over a lifetime. So don't check out when it says you've got to be holy like God is holy. You think, oh my goodness, nobody's ever going to get that. You will if you have hope. Not if you hope so. <laughs> to be holy means that Christians must conform their thinking and behavior to God's character. And so we, we, it's Peter writing us, many of these were Jews, maybe most of them were of the, of, from the Jewish place, referring back to the covenant language of the Old Testament. Um, when God chose a people for himself in Abraham, formed a nation, and he made a covenant with them. And the moral sort of aspect of that covenant is what we know as the Ten Commandments. What was the moral aspect of the Ten Commandments? And, and to live in right relationship with God in those days was to live in accordance with the Ten Commandments. And there were lots of other laws and all sorts of things. But at the essence, the moral code of God's people were the Ten Commandments, which kind of still stand the test of time. Um. When people lived like that, what it was meant to do was show that they were distinctly different to the other nations around them. All right? It wasn't that they would separate themselves from the nations and become a holy huddle. It was meant that they would live among those nations and welcome those aliens and those widows and those orphans and, or the stranger, but they would live differently. That people would say, oh, these people live differently. Look how they honor their God. Look how they honor their husbands and wives. Wow, they even Sabbath. And they don't covet their neighbor's wife. And they don't covet their neighbor's goods. And they don't murder. And they don't steal. And they, whatever, you know. Meant to live a certain way. But they didn't do that, you know. I mean, they just got the Ten Commandments and they're making a golden calf. Because we have lack patience. Um, so God was saying, I want to deal with the world through you, not on the basis of how they think, on the basis of how I think. And that hasn't, God hasn't changed that. He wants to deal with the world out there through his people. Remembering that, you know that text, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways from Isaiah. As God addresses the world, he's basically saying, my ways are not your ways. We have to be careful as we is calling us to be holy that we're not living like the world when we actually God's ways are not our ways. We're going to say how we are progressively through this new birth, this new identity, with an expectation of a final, that everything will be made right. How do we live in the way of God, in the thought of patterns of God, so that we can engage the world as God would engage it? You're supposed to be a people set apart. Jesus said it this way, you're in the world, but not of the world. But what did Israel do? 
which so many of us have done as well as church. They just became this people. They cloistered together. They built their religious walls, and no one came in and no one went out. We do that. We did it in this church. We had a thing called documents, if you were around many years ago. We basically kept people out, and we, it was just awful. But you go to churches, it's, you know, you've got your own bowling alleys and your own shopping centers and your own movie theaters and your own whatever. You don't have to engage with the world. No, we're actually meant to engage with the world. We're meant to be there. But with God's way, that we tell the truth, that we care, that we love, we do all those things. We relate to the world the way God wants us to relate to the world. I think if we took stock, most of us relate to the world the way we want to relate it so that we don't feel out. Anybody feel like that? It's kind of embarrassing today to tell someone you're a pastor. Ten years ago, if you told someone you're a pastor, they want to buy you lunch. Now they want to kick you in the pants. You know? Mondays used to be free golf day on any golf course if you were a pastor. Now if you're a pastor, we, the course is closed. It's kind of like that. Life's changed, but we all want to be liked. We all want to have friends. We want to be part of what's happening. And sometimes we lower what God has asked us to be. Now, there's no, I'm, not, I'm not trying to lay condemnation. I'm in exactly the same spot. But I think God wants to remind us, oh, actually, I've got your back. Now, going, when you went into the world with the gospel... All authority has been given to me, and I'm with you to the very end of the age. That's the way the Great Commission is tied in. However, God's character in the Old Testament that he was asking his people to live by pales into absolute insignificance, in, at least in the Scriptures, because God hasn't paled into insignificance, in the way that God has been revealed in the humanity of Jesus. There's a whole new character level that is demonstrated to the world in Jesus. And so when Peter's asking these people to be holy, he's asking them to look to Jesus and to live like Jesus in their world. That prayer that I've been praying now, it's just over a year. Teach me, Jesus, to live my life the way you would live it if you were me. If Jesus were a pastor today, how would he be living? That's what. You know? If Jesus were a filmmaker how would he be doing it? If Jesus were a lawyer, how would he be living as a lawyer? Whatever. That's the way we need to engage our world. I think at the heart of it, you've heard me say many times, I believe the ethic of the kingdom is love. Love of God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love of neighbor and love of enemy. You can't get away from those three things. There's many others, but at least those three. You know, character that will be represented will be the fruit of the Spirit. It's this idea of hope and holiness. So he says, yeah, do not be conformed as you were previously to the passions of your ignorance. What's he saying there? In other words, to be holy requires a change from the way that you used to live. You want to be holy like God is holy, you have to change. 
I remember the first year of being in the United States, I got into trouble because I used the word must. I said to someone, you must go see that movie. And I had someone come to say, well, not one more. Than, than, Who are you to tell me what we must do? What? It's just this, whatever. I'm using that word deliberately. You must change if you want to become like Jesus. You must change. You have to change. You should change. He's given you the power to change. You have no option but to change if you want to live like Jesus in the world. And that's what he asks of us. It means that you might feel like a stranger in your own society. Oh, yucky. Here are some examples that he gives, uh, that the scriptures give us that tie into that. I'm nearly finished. I went longer than I expected, and I apologize. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. Remember, Ephesians has got all this beautiful theology up front of who we are in Christ, etc., etc. Therefore, see that word again? Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, I want you to just have a thought on that text, just briefly. I'm, when you say speak the truth to one another, that's not for me to go to Tyler and say, Tyler, I see sin in your life. I don't like the way that you are speaking to Heidi. No, I think this says speak the truth with your neighbors. Me going to Tyler and say, Tyler, I'm a crappy sinner. I need help. See the switch? We think it's us telling other people about them. It's actually us telling them about us. That's what I think it is. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up this fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's an example of what it means to live different. In Philippians, let's read what it says in Philippians. You can look at any of the texts. Two verses, 8 and 9, chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What's he saying there? When I deal with Tyler and Tyler is a scallywag scoundrel, I look for anything that I can encourage and build up and speak well of. And when you're at that party and everyone's speaking badly about that person, you find the one thing that's really good and say, man, I've just appreciated that about that person. Whoa. That's what it's saying. You want to be like Jesus? We've got to start living differently. Not just in church. This is where you should be the most honest. Like, you know, out there you live boldly, encouraging. And you come back and say, oh, it was so hard. And you say, that's okay, let's, we can do it. 
Let us, don't read this, oh, these are people 2,000 years. This is us, what Peter's writing to. We're those sort of people in exile. We're in exile in our own country. We're in exile in our own world. Because we are not of this world. We're aliens and, aliens and strangers. You know, and we can learn from them. My new best friend, Alistair McGrath. Let me read from him again. Discipleship is about a conscious and committed decision to be followers of Jesus Christ in every way possible, including the way we think, love, and act. As an Oxford professor, okay? It is about growing in our faith as we quest for wisdom rather than the mere accumulation of information about Christianity. Discipleship is rooted in a secure, reflective, and deepening grasp of the Christian gospel. This kind of wisdom goes far beyond a simple and often superficial knowledge of basic Christian ideas. It arises from a deep and prolonged personal reflection on the Christian faith over an extended period of time, informing both thought and action. Peter writes, gird your minds, get your minds ready for action. This is what he's saying here. Think about it. Get it. Make adjustments so that we can. And when you're struggling, say, help. Who wrote this letter that we're going teaching from? Sorry? Peter. What do we know about Peter? He was the guy that walked on water. And then what happened while he was walking on the water? Help. You're allowed to shout for help. It's okay. Jesus will hear you every time, and hopefully one of us will hear you too. I'm reading poetry. So I'm going read to read you a poem. Is that okay? This is written by Count von Zinzendorf. Anyone know who Count von Zinzendorf was? You don't? Brian, who was Count von Zinzendorf? You know, he started the Moravians community. Moravian community went for 300 years, whatever. I think they're still going, but they, their community never got more than 300 people, and they planted churches in every nation on the, on the earth. Oh, yeah. Well, he hasn't yet risen to his identity and boldness. Yeah. He's not, he's not Canadian. Um, this is Count Zinzendorf, who was this count, this man of nobility, who was persecution. He took Christians onto his farm, created a community, a heron hut, it's called. And um, it's a great story of mission endeavor to the world. And he wrote this. And, and then Wesley, John Wesley, translated to English. I don't know if it became a hymn. I'm not a, I'm not a, a Wesley hymn expert. But these are the words. It's beautiful. It's called A Prayer for Purity. O thou to whose all-searching sight the darkness shineth as the light. Search, prove my heart, it pants for thee. O burst these bonds and set it free. Wash out its stains, refine its dross, nail my affections to the cross. Hallow each thought, let all within be clean as thou, my Lord, art clean. If in this darksome wild I stray, be thou my light, be thou my way. No foes, no violence I fear, no fraud while thou, my God, art near. 
When rising floods my soul overflow, when sinks my heart in waves of woe, Jesus, thy timely aid impart, and raise my head and cheer my heart. Saviour, wherever thy steps I see, dauntless and tired, I follow thee. Oh, let thy hand support me still and lead me to thy holy hill. If rough and thorny be the way, my strength proportioned to my day, till toil and grief and pain shall cease, where all is calm and joy and peace. Isn't it beautiful? Father, through these jumbled words today, would you encourage us? Would you give us hope? Would we reflect on the goodness of this great salvation that we have? Reflect on this great gospel. Reflect on our new identity in you. And therefore live with a sense of eternity in our hearts. A sense of the future coming our way. And it's all good. And may, because of that, may we set our faces like flint set our faces into the wind, turn our bodies to go upstream, to be holy as you are holy, to allow you to work in us, to change us and to shape us. May we be quick to ask for help, quick to acknowledge our weakness and sin, slow to anger. May we need one another. May we recognize that and live like that. In your precious name.